Good morning. I'd like to welcome all our guests at the Expanding Light and uh, all our um, guests also just uh, visiting uh, the village uh, today and also everyone on the internet. My name is Swami Bharat and this is Swami Anandi and it's our great joy and delight to celebrate Sunday service with you. I'd like to read from Rays of the One Light by Swami Kriyananda, it's commentaries on the Bhagavad Gita and the Bible. And our reading today is on ego, friend, or foe. Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. Jesus Christ begins his Beatitudes with the words, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To be poor in spirit in such a way as to merit the kingdom of heaven, doesn't mean to be poor-spirited. Rather, it means to see oneself as owning nothing, since all belongs to God. For all is a manifestation of his consciousness. St. John of the Cross wrote, If you would own everything, seek to own nothing. That which the ego relinquishes, offering up to the soul consciousness, is reclaimed forever in cosmic consciousness. Nothing is ever lost. Paramahansa Yogananda tells the story in the autobiography of a yogi of the levitating saint Baduri Mahashaya. Master, said a disciple of this saint once ardently, you are wonderful. You have renounced riches and comforts to seek God and teach us wisdom. It was well known that Baduri Mahashaya had forsaken great family wealth in his early childhood when single-mindedly he entered the yogic path. You are reversing the case, the saint's face held mild rebuke. I have left a few paltry rupees, a few petty pleasures, for a cosmic empire of endless bliss. How then have I denied myself anything? I know the joy of sharing the treasure. Is that a sacrifice? The short-sighted worldly folk are verily the real renunciates. They relinquish an unparalleled divine possession for a poor handful of earthly toys. The Bhagavad Gita in the third chapter states, all things are everywhere by nature wrought. In interaction of the qualities, the fool cheated by self thinks, this I did and that I wrought. But ah, thou strong-armed prince, a better lesson mine, knowing the play of visible things within the world of sense, and how the qualities must qualify, standeth aloof even from his acts. Thus, through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. Om, Om, Om. Good morning, everyone. I'll start this morning by reading from Whispers from Eternity, a beautiful book of poems <clears throat> and prayers by Paramahansa Yogananda. <clears throat> this is called Thy Imprisoned Bird of Omnipresence Was Released. The opened door of meditation released the caged bird of omnipresence. It fluttered, then spread its wings and flew up and outward over infinite spaces. 
Its joyful song brought peace to every unhappiness-scorched being. Alas, unaccustomed to its newly found freedom, the soaring bird remembered the little cage that had enclosed it in old ways. It flew back, hopped inside, and folded its wings, hiding again, safely as it thought, with its illusory security. O bird of eternity, take heart. Break out forever from that little prison of imaginary security and soar up to thy barless home in everything. Wonderful, wonderful image. Well, this morning's topic, ego, friend or foe. We have to answer that question. Last Sunday, our minister, Pranava, quoted during his Sunday service um, the saint, great saint from India um, in the early 20th century, Swami Vivekananda. Swami Vivekananda liked to make statements that were true and also startling. And so what he said was, um, it is no doubt a blessing to be born in a religion, but it's a misfortune to die in one. And as Pranaba explained, the idea is that religion helps us. It offers us a channel. It offers us a focus. It helps us to move in the direction of tuning into God. But at a certain point in our development, we hope that we're beginning to feel God within ourselves. We're beginning to see God in every religion. We're beginning to see God in every person and in every part of creation. And at that point, we don't need religion anymore. We, we are expanding beyond religion. And so I realized when we come to this question of ego, friend or foe, it's it's the same basic concept. We need an ego. We have to develop an ego. Um, Winston Churchill, who was pretty well known for his ego, was someone came up to him once and sort of chided him for having uh, such a strong ego. And he said, well, you have to have an ego. How else are you going to get anything, anything done? So we need the ego to help us um, become who we're meant to be. When a baby is born, it doesn't have a sense of itself. It's very much linked to its mother. And its will in the beginning is what you call mechanical or unthinking will. Whatever the mother is doing, that the baby reflects it. They don't have a sense of separateness. And Yogananda tells a story from his early childhood he must have been about two years old. He was just a baby, and everybody said what a good little boy he was. But he described this experience in his life that was a turning point for him. He um, went to the drugstore with his nurse, and he saw there some little orange-colored candies. And he, he wanted those candies. But his nurse said, no, you can't have them. So they went home. And that night, after dinner, his mother was getting ready to put him to bed, and he said, Mother, I want those orange candies from the drugstore. And she said, No, no, go to bed. Now it's time to go to bed. Mother, I want the orange candies from the drugstore. 
I don't know if you remember during the affirmation, but they talked about saints and power, and he had a lot of power. And finally, he was screaming, and he was exerting his will. And his mother had to go knock on the door of the druggist and ask him to open up the drugstore so he could get that, so she could get that candy for him. But Yogananda said after that, people said, "Oh, he's a naughty boy." But he, <laughs> But he said, I was thrilled because that moment, it wasn't because he got the candies, it was his first experience of finding out who he was, expressing his own will. And he said that's an important stage in our development. And so we need to do that. We need to figure out who am I, where are my boundaries, uh, Uh, Indian teachings say the ego is the soul identified with the body. So here I am. This is me. I'm not unified with my mother anymore. I'm just me. And this is what I want. And I'm going to know how to figure out how to achieve it. And so we do that. And we achieve. And we get what we want. And we get what we want. And then we realize that every time we get what we want, it falls just a little bit short of what we really want. And we, we always feel like there must be more, and at a certain point in our life we realize more is not out there. More has got to be found in here. And so we begin to take up things like yoga and meditation, and we begin to explore a whole other world. And no matter why we start it, even if we just get into yoga because all our friends are doing it, whatever, As we practice, we come into this inner world and we discover joy, real joy. We discover real love and it doesn't, it doesn't go away. It gets deeper and it gets more full and we discover a wonderful world and we begin to become much more interested in seeking how expanded could I be? How free could I be? And now we come to the place where the ego switches from being our friend because it was our ego who figured all this out, that we needed more. So the ego was helping us come to the path of meditation. But then we get very, very serious about achieving, finding God within ourselves. And then the ego becomes our foe. And it starts to put up resistances. And it starts to say things like, I don't know why I meditate. I'm not any good at this. And maybe this isn't real at all. Maybe this is just a pipe dream. Why am I doing this? It comes up with doubts. It comes up with distractions. And it, and it keeps trying to trip us up. And then we enter a little bit of what uh, uh, the scriptures call the battlefield of life, where we really try to fight for that inner world And we have to look beyond whatever the, the boundaries are that get set for us. Look for that window that we experience in meditation. We experience it at the spiritual eye. We experience it in the presence of God as a very sometimes quiet uh, joy inside of ourselves, a quiet peace underneath the surface of everything. We look for a doorway to freedom. And I'd like to just share something that happened a couple of weeks ago. One of our guests shared a story of this that was so touching to me. It happened to her about 15 years ago. At that point, she had two babies, a one-year-old and a two-year-old. 
and something dramatic happened in their family uh, situation that exploded everything. Uh, um, husband lost his job, financial disaster. It looked like there were no openings whatsoever. She couldn't go back to work. She had the two babies. She just felt hemmed in on every side. And so what did she do? She took a piece of red chalk and she went out into her yard, her backyard, and she, on the fence she wrote in big letters, God is my good. And that was her focus. Every door was closed, and she said, there's one door that's open, and that's God. And that's the one I'm going to take. And she began to just make that her focus, not worry about the facts, not worry about uh, the material world. And in a very short time, one door opened, and then another door opened, and within less than a year, their whole situation had righted itself permanently. So that's what we're looking for. When the ego becomes our foe, it's not as powerful as the presence of God. And we want to look for that power. We want to look for that inner presence within us. It might be only just a tiny thread of light, but that simple connection with God will take us to freedom. And now, uh, Farah would like to share some thoughts with you. <laughs> For the last uh, four weeks, I prepared Sunday service, and I wasn't able to, to come and be with you all, so I wanted to say some words today. Uh, the, the verse uh, in the Gita says that the fool cheated by uh, the self uh, thinks uh, this I did and that I wrought remind me of the story of the beaver and the rabbit. They were standing there uh, looking off in the distance at the Grand Canyon Dam. It's a very, very big dam. And the rabbit was very, very impressed and uh, looked at the beaver and said, is that your work? <laughs> <laughs> And the beaver said no, but it was based on an idea of mine. <laughs> so I'm going to use the analogy of a, a, a painting. Uh, you know, you have a, a, master, a great master a painter who has drawn the inspiration, has painted the, uh, the painting, but he didn't really do it. But you could have the farmer that says, well, it's my painting. I grew the cotton for the canvas, and on and on and on. But if you trace things far enough back, you see that God is behind everything. Uh, the great mathematician, uh, how do you say it? Ramanujan. Okay, thank you. <laughs> he said he's only interested in math, uh, you know, just in viewing every equation as a thought of God. You know, the, the ego uh, manifests itself as likes and dislikes. It says, uh, I love this, I love, I hate that. And it's never satisfied with what is. And, uh, and so it's always restless. And it's, essentially, it's, it's a beggar. And because it's just needy all the time. Uh, there's a real interesting story of Carl Jung. He uh, was visiting the American Southwest, a, a Taos Indian chief. Uh, Chief Mountain Lake, and uh, he, he had a real rapport with this man, uh, 
and uh, the, the chief, and uh, they talked about, well, what, was it, what is it like to live with white people? What do you think of white people? And he said, oh, uh, white people, we don't understand them. Uh, they are always so restless and always want more and more. Mm. And we think they're a little bit crazy. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, and so uh, Jung said, well, uh, why do you think that is? Uh, and uh, Chief Mountain Lake said, well, they say they think with their, with their minds. And uh, well, uh, Jung said, well, yeah, of course. Uh, well, what, what do you think with? And Chief Mountain Lake, uh, he said, well, we think with, and he pointed to his heart. And it's very, very interesting because uh, Swami talks about when you are going deep into the Om experience, you, uh, you first you hear it you know, inside the right ear, but the, the ego is based at the base of the brain, uh, the medulla oblongata, and that's the point of self-awareness. But then that current comes into the heart. You feel this expanding joy in the heart. And Master talked about uh, the heart being a point of intuitive perception where you experience the highest heavens. And this is uh, the point of really knowing. Somebody described uh, intuition as a prolonged spiritual experience. And so this is, uh, the mind is always thinking. I heard that, um, you know, we have 300 self-talk thoughts a minute and 80% of them are uh, uh, negative and uh, 95% of our thoughts are thoughts that we've been mulling on for days. And you know, how can God uh, come in uh, at, at that point? And so, um, you know, Master Paramahansa Yogananda, he said that man's greatest problem is egoism, uh, the, uh, the a feeling of individuality, that everything that happens uh, to oneself is happening to them personally. And uh, it seems sort of logical. Um, I was going through a period at Ananda uh, quite a few years ago where I was oversensitive and I was running into situations uh, that were helping me with that. And, and I. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, uh, Swami once said, and it's very helpful to keep this thought in mind that everybody, everything that comes to you is just an instrument for your karma uh, to overcome. Uh, and it's not personal about that individual. It's personal regarding your own karma. Well, I was having a chance to get my aura around that. And um, I had a dream. And it was a very interesting dream because in this dream, uh, one of the people I was having uh, a you know, just it was a little slight. It wasn't anything at all. But in my dream, uh, he took out a gun and he shot me eight times in the chest. And uh, it was a little bit disconcerting. Um, <laughs> and then after the dream, I was in a community meeting. And um, there were about ten of us at meeting, and I was sitting there. And you know how in a conversation, sometimes you look for an opening where you could have uh, a chance to kind of come in and say what you think is important because I felt like, well, if there's somebody running around the community shooting people in the chest, <laughs> the people should know. <laughs> <laughs> so I um, was kind of waiting and I couldn't get an opening in. I kept waiting and, uh, but, and then finally I heard this voice very clear in my mind says, Bharat, it doesn't matter. 
And it didn't matter. And you know, it just to really just let let go of these things. And um, you know, uh, there's a analogy that you've heard before, but it's very very interesting. You know, if a little boy, a little Johnny, let's say, is running along and he trips and skins his knee, he looks up at his parents, and if they're alarmed, and if they're, um, uh, you know, just kind of baby him, and that he'll start crying. Mm -hmm. But if you just say, okay, Johnny, let's go, uh, let's keep going, and that he'll just get up and go. Well, that little Johnny's our ego. Mm -hmm. And if we coddle the ego and, you know, worry over his little slights, uh, then the ego just gets entrenched and kind of overtakes us. Uh, but if we just don't give it the energy, it will start to dissipate. I had an amusing experience. Uh, I was uh, hosting a little dinner party at the monastery years ago in my 12-foot trailer, and uh, three of the monks were there. And I'm not sure what was on the menu. It might have been chips a la or, or something, but it wasn't too elaborate. Uh, but it was winter time, and uh, of course I didn't have any heat, and so everybody had their coats on, and I had a, a stocking cap with a tassel. And I was um, sort of serving what uh, might have been the chips on the table, and I, I put my hat under the propane light, and it <laughs> caught on fire. And Ramdas, who's a very joyful soul, he started laughing. <laughs> But I didn't know what the joke was or what was funny. And the other two monks, they didn't feel inspired to, uh, to say anything either. And my hat was getting warm, but uh, all of a sudden I felt it was warm. And then I looked over and it was like burning on top. <laughs> well, you don't have to take it that far. Um, but uh, you don't want to be impersonal towards other people. Uh, you want to be impersonal towards yourself. And otherwise, uh, there wouldn't be that sense of compassion. You know, meditation, uh, meditation is the art of stilling the consciousness. It's when we go into that stillness is when we experience God and we overcome our individuality and our personality. In Hong Sa, every time we bring our thought back to the breath and to the mantra, what we're doing is that we're calming the personality and we're releasing identification with the body every moment uh, that, that this happening. I had experiences, I was just beginning to work on the own book of going into a very profound stillness. And I had a class to teach after that meditation. And as I was uh, giving the class, there was just this incredible fragment stillness uh, that I felt, in, uh, and the thoughts just seemed to come out of that stillness. It was almost like God saying, let's say this. It's time to say this. And it was so thrilling just to have that feeling that God is the doer and to really allow him to really do it. Because, of course, it's a lot more beautiful when he can be the doer and we feel that flow of energy through our lives. And there's a storyteller in New Mexico when I was just starting out with my sharing nature work it was the early 80s. And he said that in storytelling, in a story, the pauses are just as important as the words. Because the pauses, they highlight a word. But when you think of it, actually, the pauses 
are even more important than the words. Because if you didn't have pauses, you, the words would just be all jumbled together and you couldn't pick out any of the words and understand their meaning. Well, God is the pause. God is the stillness. And our lives and our actions uh, are the words. And uh, we need that stillness behind everything we do because it will enliven everything. And, uh, and we've seen that uh, through our meditation practice. It's the greatest way to overcome delusion and the thought of self is in that stillness. And at a certain point, we really know that. We know that we aren't this little reality. And we sort of, sort of see it there. And sometimes we see it kind of becoming a little more dynamic. <laughs> and that, but then we just can just quiet it down because it really doesn't have any substance. God uh, is stillness of spirit, is untouched by his creation. People will often say that, why is there so much suffering in the world? You know, how could God create this creation? How could he permit this to happen? Well, God is untouched by all this. And we, as sons and daughters of God, as children of God, we have that same consciousness. We're made in that same image. And he wants us to become like him. And he wants us to develop that strength, not to be touched by anything. And that's really the whole purpose of this journey that we're all going through, and uh, perhaps gone through for millions of lifetimes. Uh, but we're really close to being out because we figured out the whole purpose of creation, and that's to not get caught by anything and not hold on to anything, but just let it go and see behind. And the way to see behind everything is just to, and through that stillness, everything else is an overactive vibration and restlessness, but in that stillness, we really see at the heart of everything. Uh, one saint said that, uh, used this analogy of if you come into a house and you see this beautiful organ, uh, maybe you've, but you've never played the organ before, and you could go and you could try playing the organ, uh, but you'd probably play pretty bad music. Uh, but if you wait for the master organist to come who can play the full potential of that organ, uh, that's the best way to go. Well, God is the master organist, and we are the soul who comes in, and we're, we're the organ, and our soul comes in. And if we try to play that organ, uh, you know, just from our own limited consciousness, we'll play a pretty tune. Uh, but if we allow God to flow through us, to play through us, it'll be an amazing, wonderful, blissful tune that will not only touch our hearts, but will touch the heart of all creation. Bless you all.